Hi, everyone, and welcome to Strategy Insights, a podcast from firmsconsulting.com that goes out every Monday morning at 8 a.m. where we distill the big insights from the big stories in the world of finance, economics, and basically anything that impacts the globe, businesses, and consumers today. As always, we're going to go through this by theme. But before we do that, I wanted to remind you that if you would like a copy of this newsletter that goes out every Monday morning, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and put in your email address. You'll receive this every Monday morning. If you would like to listen to the podcast version of this, go to any podcast app and type in strategy skills. You will automatically get the podcast every Monday morning. And if you would like to see the previous episodes of the previous insights we sent out. You can go to amazon.com and search for strategy insights. Now, before we get into the big stories today, I want to remind you that it's more important to think about how you're going to use what we are teaching you. It's important that your identity is not assigned. It's not linked. It's not that of someone who simply likes to have smart insights, talk about the insights, but really doesn't move the world, doesn't change anything with it. If your identity is tied to someone who simply sends an email about a smart insight, but you don't change the way a team operates, you don't change the way a product is developed, you don't change the way a decision is made at your company, then really you are only going to be someone who is going to be translating what we are teaching as opposed to someone who is moving the needle of what we are teaching. And I always point out to our readers and clients and so on is you want to be a leader and a leader takes action. And that action is not simply writing about an insight. So always think about that and try to identify with the right role models. And unfortunately, in the world that we live in of management consulting, private equity, banking and so on, many people like to be smart and they take great pride in being smart. And there's nothing wrong with that. You need to be smart, you need to be intelligent, you need to be wise and insightful, but you have to be someone who actually uses that knowledge as well. So let's get into one of the biggest themes we are seeing today. Firstly, the theme is entitled COVID-19 is probably turned out to be the best contraceptive in the world today. Let me explain to you why I'm saying this. It's been assumed for a very long time, and I've read this in many different places, online dating sites and many places. It's almost as if it's conventional wisdom that if you take two people and you put them together long enough and you get them to talk to each other long enough and you get them to stare at each other's eyes long enough and you put them in the same space long enough, they will eventually develop a bond, a connection, which starts from being friend, starts with awareness to empathy friendship and then a deep uh, emotional connection we can call it love if you wanted to and then eventually they will have a relationship that turns out not to be true if you look at the numbers from global data on birth rates in the last nine months and they're available in many different places you can go to any of the major news outlets they will have these numbers they may have different numbers but the ranges are approximately the same but basically major economies are seeing births declining by between 10 percent and 20%, that means 20% fewer babies were born as a result of COVID in some of the biggest economies in the world, from Japan, France, Spain, and so on. And the numbers are pretty much similar across the world. I mean, the, the range is different, of course, but the numbers and the trend is the same. Japan seen a drop. Taiwan has seen a drop. 
uh, Hong Kong has seen a drop. I read somewhere that Hong Kong saw a decline of over 50%. That means the year-on-year change from January to January was about 50%. China is probably going to see a drop. All major economies are seeing a drop. The United States is a little bit different, but it's still saw one of the slowest growths on record. Now, why does this matter? Why should we worry about whether people are having babies or not? Well, there are a couple of reasons why this is why this matters. The first one is let's leave aside the insights and implications of declining birth rates, of which there are many. But let's start with this with the precedent that we've set in the way we analyze data. We've always assumed that people have babies or more babies when they are financially secure. And when people are not financially secure, they will have fewer children. That's really the underlying premise of most newspaper articles. That turns out not to be true. And I think many of you will say, but that's true. Of course it's true, because if you look at China, for example, the situation now is more uncertain than before COVID. In that case, it's true. But if you look at all these countries that are seeing major declining birth rates, and you look at countries that are in many ways much poorer, where the standard of living is not great, where the future does not look so promising. Those countries, many of them in Africa and the Middle East and so on, have not seen any declines, I think, in birth rates, or some of them have, but the majority have not. So you have a situation where in wealthy countries where birth rates were already low, when the economic outlook gets worse, the birth rate lowers. In poorer countries where the economic outlook was always not good, when it gets a little bit worse, it doesn't really drop much. So where do we develop this concept that when the economy does worse, people want to have less babies? It seems to only be true in wealthier countries. It does not seem to be true in many other parts of the world. And that has an implication for the way we make decisions in terms of product launches, in the way we choose to invest in economies, in where we build regional headquarters. It matters to the world, but we can cut this data in an even bigger way because the declining birth rates don't mean the same things for all countries. Let's take um, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, for example, and let's add in Japan and South Korea there, right? So Hong Kong is a part of China, but it's treated differently in the press, so it's treated differently as well here. Same with Taiwan, right? According to the United States, the United States government only recognizes China, but it also supports Taiwan. So let's put Taiwan separately here. So we have China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, Korea. Well, now what's the difference between these countries? You would say they all have declining birth rates of significant numbers, so they're all in the same boat. They're not in the same boat. If you look at why a country grows, if you look at why any market grows, any market grows because people are consuming something. Semiconductor chip share prices are going through the roof because and it's not just car companies, electronic companies are buying more chips. It's because people are buying more electronics. And therefore, electronics companies are buying more chips. It all starts with the people. If you have more people being born, there are more people that go through that cycle of being young adults, going to university, getting married, having children, growing a family, buying homes, buying furniture, buying cars, and so on. That's what drives consumption. The more young people you have, who have the wherewithal to earn money and spend that money, that was drives an economy. So you're going to say that if the birth rates are declining, well, we have a problem. Not exactly. The other ways economies grow is that if you have the same number of people and they become more wealthy, it's not as big a driver as much more people going through the system. But Japan, South Korea, 
even Taiwan, they have already seen big jumps in their productivity. They're wealthy, for lack of a better word, they are wealthy countries. So yes, they're probably going to be more wealthy in the future, but it's not going to be a big as driver as they want. There are some exceptions to the rule, yeah, like Singapore tends to crank out big productivity gains each year, but that's quite rare. The reason why China is different is because China still has to go through two models of growth that drive global consumption. The first one, the big one, is urbanization, or as some people call it today, suburbanization. What that means is that as China brings in more people from rural communities and puts them into semi-rural urban environments and so on, those people are not only going to consume more, but the process of building those suburban or urban centers drives growth. So that's what makes China a little bit different here. China has got problems with aging because it's getting older before it becomes richer. So it's got a totally different problem from Korea and Japan. And the question now becomes is, will the urbanization trend for China outweigh the negative effects of aging for China? And that's the thing many people need to, to think about, right? So for the next big theme, it's simply entitled CVC, Toshiba, and what's really happening there. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about the mechanics of the deal. It's well covered in the press, whereby I think CVC is making, CVC Capital Partners, a private equity firm, is using their Asian fund to make something in the range of a $20 billion bid to take Toshiba private. Well covered, fantastic publications in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and so on have covered this in a lot of detail. Nikkei Asia has also got many pieces on this. I want to step out of the deal to explain to you the insight of why deals happen. A deal is when a CEO decides that he's got many arrows, he's got many quivers, or it's called arrows, he's got many arrows that he's got tucked away behind his back, and he pulls out different arrows to manage a company, right? That's not difficult to understand, right? He can uh, do a merger. He can break apart the company. He can do a asset optimization program. He can roll out a new strategy. He can undertake an operations review of the company. He can do a share buyback. He can do many things, right? Usually it's a he, sometimes it's a she as well. It would be nice if there's more females as leaders, but unfortunately the world has not got there yet. So the question becomes not, we shouldn't be looking at the mechanics of the private equity deal. We should ask ourselves, why does why did this CEO pick this option? What is it telling us here? Well, let's look about what we know about the deal, right? But before we do that, we must remember one thing. In um, any MBA program, they teach us that um, the number one goal of a company, the number one goal that a CEO is pursuing is to protect shareholders and to create the most wealth for shareholders. Now, I'm not saying that's right. I think companies need to spend more time focusing on workers and communities, but that's what Milton Friedman has taught the world and MBA students are indoctrinated in that. That's actually not true. And it's a very easy thing to disprove. The number one thing CEOs are interested in is not how to protect shareholders and increase their wealth. The number one thing CEOs are interested in is how to keep their jobs. That's human nature. Any CEO, any leader, if you want to go down into their psyche and you want to understand why they do things, they do things to preserve their role and their jobs. And there are many CEOs who have undertaken bad decisions, bad strategies simply to keep their jobs. That's just human nature. If, if this is not true, then somehow we've created a world where the rest of the world is 
little bit selfish. We know the world is based on self-interest, but CEOs are paragons of moral rightitude. And that can't be true, right? So the question becomes, why would the CEO do this? Well, what do we know about Toshiba? For one thing, we know that the head of CVC Japan is now the head of Toshiba. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, private equity fund managers, country leaders are obviously incredibly talented people with deep knowledge of the country, regulation in certain sectors. So it makes sense that they would sometimes move back into industry, right? But at the same time, we know that the company's had a pretty difficult time in the last few years. They've faced activist shareholder pressure. They've um, had problems with uh, accounting issues. I'm not going to say whether it's right or wrong, but they've had accounting issues, which uh, led to the shares almost being delisted. They almost went bankrupt two years ago. On top of that, Toshiba has a large nuclear division. And given how important that is to the Japanese economy, whichever company buys Toshiba, which would be one of the largest private equity deals in the world ever, if it ever goes through, we need to get government approval. On top of that, the way private equity firms work is that each firm has a fund and they use that fund to make a deal. So it's not as if all of CVC's entire balance sheet can be brought to the table. Whichever fund they've allocated to Japan needs to do the deal. Maybe it can take money from some other funds that they have, but I'm pretty sure there are rules around how much money you can transfer out of a fund. And I don't think they could do too much of that. Now, given all of this, we could argue that the deal, which seems very unlikely, may be a way to draw attention away from the difficulties Toshiba is going through. And there's nothing wrong with that. If it's drawing attention away from the difficulty so management can focus on things, but also the deal is right for Toshiba. It's common practice and it's actually encouraged that when a management team is under crisis or a management team is struggling or they're going through a period whereby they're being distracted by unnecessary noise, they should do things that bring their attention back to what is important. If this is a way to bring their attention to back, back to what is important, if this is a way for them to reset the conversation with shareholders, with regulators, and if this is good for Toshiba, then it's a good thing. But we've got to remember that at the end of the day, many leaders do what's good for them. And I don't know the CEO of Toshiba. I'm going to assume he's a good guy and he knows that this is good for the company. But as we look at the deal, don't just look at the mechanics of the deal. Let's look at why the deal is happening. Is it good for Toshiba? And the only people know if it, who, whether it's good for Toshiba are the shareholders who follow Toshiba very closely. The Japanese government obviously has a big say in this. And of course, the CEO and the private equity firm. But let's hope that they're making the right decision. Now, the next big theme I want to talk about, it's a pretty interesting one. It's entitled Understanding Negative Interest Rates. And I want to do it in a very different way because everyone can go into any major news publication and read about negative interest rates and what it means for the world. Let me explain to you very briefly what this is, right? If you go to a bank and you take out and you have a credit card, the bank charges you an interest rate to give you that money. That means that if you take out $100, whatever the interest rate is, let's say it's 5% for the year, which is low, more likely 20%, that means if you don't pay it off, you have to pay off the $100 plus the 20%. Now, the idea here is that if an economy is doing very well and there's a lot of inflation, they raise, the central bank will raise the interest rate. 
So the amount of money you pay for the amount of money you borrow is going to be higher. But if the economy is not doing well and nobody wants to borrow, inflation is low, prices are not rising, the central bank will say, okay, if nobody wants to borrow, one of the biggest reasons nobody wants to borrow is because money is too expensive. So we're going to lower the interest rate and they keep lowering the interest rate. Now, if you follow it's a little bit of economics and you don't need to, but if you follow this, you know that for a long time it was assumed that zero was the lowest interest rate you could go to, right? People assume that once you cut the interest rate to zero, you couldn't make it negative because it would have no impact. Because if you go to zero, what you're saying is that if people leave their money in a bank, they're not going to get any interest. But also, banks would charge you less money for the money you borrowed from them, right? So there's two sides here. One is the amount of money you are charged as interest when you borrow it. But one, which most people are worried about now, if you're a consumer, is that if you leave the money in a bank, you're not going to get any interest from the bank because interest rates are zero. Now let's focus on the second one because this is where it gets interesting. If the interest rate goes to minus one, that means you have to pay the bank money to leave your money with the bank. Because previously, if it was plus one, the bank would pay you money. The thinking here was that if you made the interest rate negative, many bad things would happen or nothing would happen. But mostly the consensus was people would pull their money out of cash and do th things with it, right? Very few central banks went negative. In fact, I think just a few. I think it was Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, Eurozone, and Japan. Very few, right? Now, there's two interesting insights here. One is due to the way banking has changed. The impact of a slight negative interest rate is not modifying people's behavior in the way central banks expected. At least that's what we think. Right? This is about insights that people are not seeing. Let's look at it this way. If you have, let's say, $5,000 in a rural branch of a bank, and you live in some rural area where you have to drive 45 miles every day if you want to go to your bank. If you get scared and you take your money out of the bank, to take your money out of the bank when it goes negative because you think the bank is robbing you, they're not giving you any interest. You want to take your money out. To take your money out of the bank, you have to drive 45 miles, bring your money home, put it under a mattress or do something with it. And then if you want to change your mind, you have to go back to the bank and do this. So there's a very big inconvenience factor. Now what's happening is with the rise of digital banking, many people, and this is what the insight is, and we don't know how it'll play out, but there is a belief now that if we were negative, it's possible that people will see, let's assume the 0.1% negative interest rate or the 0.2% negative interest rate as a convenience charge. Now, we're going we're gonna to unpack what is the insight here. When we look at how policy or how products or how anything is going to be rolled out, it's very important we don't just look at it from a rational perspective. The rational thing would be to say that if interest rates went from plus one, which means you, you the bank is going to give you 1% for your money in there, to minus one, which means the bank's not going to give you 1% for the money you have in there. We should not assume the behavior is going to be the opposite because all other things are not equal. It's still to be seen whether this convenience factor is true. But what we do know is that because banking is going to be run differently, people's behavior will be different. And we need to think carefully about how changes in policy, any policy, not just interest rates, how changes in, in privacy protections, how changes in any rule you have 
is going to modify behavior if people are interacting with the world differently. The fact that central banks in Denmark and Japan have done this, the economies have not collapsed, people have not taken their money out of the bank, tells us that people are not going to behave the opposite once you switch the interest rate in the opposite way from plus one to minus one. And it's going to be different in different countries. Japan is not so digitized, but Denmark is. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why didn't people's behavior change? And we have to think about what that means for the decisions we are making in the world. And I think more importantly, we have to think about what it means as more of the world becomes digital. You know, the final example is a quick example is, let's say the rise of um, Airbnb. And people assume that nobody would want to stay in a private home versus a hotel. And they give a number of reasons. You know, the hotel is well managed, safety issues and so on. But if you look at the numbers today, Airbnb is worth far more than the largest hotel chain in the world. There are no rooms. But what changed? Technology is what changed. It's not just that technology allowed them to do this. That's, that's fairly obvious. It's that the behavior modification people expected was different when that behavior was transacted on a technology platform. And that's what we need to think about, right? So in the final piece for Strategy Insights, which I'm going to entitle When Promotion Ends and the Runway Ends, I'm going to talk through a client situation which is quite interesting, right? So let's talk about this, right? I have a client. I'm going to call him Adi. He works for a, a large multinational company. You know, typical route. There's nothing unusual about his career. He worked in industry for a long time. He did his uh, executive MBA at a very good school, a rated program. I think it was between the age of 32 and 34 he did his EMBA. Interviewed at many firms. He then joined this uh, large multinational company. And like any immigrant, he wants to follow the American dream of not just having a, a healthy and a wealthy, I suppose, family and life, but also to contribute to society, to be a part of the fabric of a company that's making a big change for the good in not just the United States, but the world as well. So this client followed through a program of figuring out ways to make his team as successful as possible. And he did a number of things well. And if you want to know what those things are, you can read any of our journals or any of our programs. We teach all those techniques there. But I'll summarize just a few things. Obviously, there's a lot more layers behind this. The first thing he did very well is to really understand who the customer is and what the customer wants. So rather than saying these are the resources available to the company, he said, who is the customer? What is their life like? What are their pain points? And how do we build the resources, products and services that they need, even if it's not what we currently have and even if it's not what we can offer? or where we don't have the, the skills to make a quick adjacent move, right? He did all these things and his unit is very successful. But all conventional measures, his unit is um, successful. So stayed in that role, I believe, for about three years, maybe four years. Each performance review is told your unit is successful, company is very happy with what you're doing, and you need to keep doing what you're doing. We want you to, to stay there. And I don't know the exact numbers, but I believe his unit was a fairly significant contributor to the firm's overall profit. So for that region of the world, he was running a unit that generated a significant amount of profits. So now being the ambitious person that he is, kept doing this. Working hard, his team is successful by most conventional measures, whether it's about 
return on invested capital, whether it's about return on equity. Well, you, you can't get a return on equity measure for them, but you could estimate it, whether it's against what competitors are doing. So he keeps hearing the same thing. And what happens with him is that being someone who's very ambitious and being someone who wants to use the training he has, he gets to this point in his career where he's about 40 years old and he's not getting promoted. No promotions are coming. He's told he's very valuable. He knows objectively his team is doing well. He knows that a big profit contributor. But the EVP doesn't want to move him around. In fact, I would say probably the CEO also has a say, at least the regional CEO also has a say in Addy's career because he's an important person. He runs an important team. Now, what happens with Addy is that over this period, he gets more and more disillusioned because he believes that he's doing well but he can't see a way to grow his career. So he's doing well, but you know what happens when you, when you do well and you're not challenged? You kind of zone out because you're not challenged. Everything's happening. Everything's going fairly well. You get in there and you do the work and you're running your team very well and you're an important member of your team. But internally, you suffer from burnout because you look at yourself and say, I'm 40 years old. You know, what do I do now? And this is what happens with many people. This is what he's tried. He's tried gaining new skills which is what most people do. He's tried learning new ways to communicate. He's tried to network with other senior members of other senior leaders of his company, both in his country and in other countries. All fabulous feedback. Now, the analogy I want you to think of here is a, imagine a plane is flying in the air. And the imagery that comes to mind for me is some movie with, some movie with a guy from Indiana Jones. What's his name? Harrison Ford. Yes, yeah, some movie with Harrison Ford. And he's a president. And I think terrorists are trying to take the plane and they fire on this plane. Now, what happens with, the, with these Boeings is when, you, you f- when they're fired upon, they have a lot of these evasive maneuvers. They normally shoot out flares. What these flares do is they distract the missiles and the missile hits the flare and the Boeing goes away. Your career is a little bit like this. As you go through your career from the age of about 21 for most people, progressing higher and higher, each time you face a challenge where you feel that you, you could derail your career, you you throw out a flare that helps you. An example of a flare of this would be like, for example, you learn a new skill, you do an MBA. Sometimes you even change companies. Each time you throw out a flare, this missile that's gonna hit your career is distracted. So you find ways to deflect bad things that could happen to your career. Now, something people don't talk about much is when you get to the age of about 40, you don't have any flares left. Just like that Boeing, at some point it's gonna run out of flares. And unfortunately, we don't talk about too much what happens when you reach that point when you run out of flares. Because when you're 30, 28, even 35, it's pretty easy to do a couple of things. You can get an MBA. You can skill up in something. You can even switch jobs. Now, many people do switch jobs if they think their company doesn't appreciate them. But by and large, almost always the case, they go to a weaker company that wants them because they worked at a better branded company. So they get what they think is a better job, but it's not really a better job because they're going to a weaker company and they're leaving that entire social network behind that made them successful. So they have to go to a company that's not as better, that's not as well, and they have to start all over again. Now, Addy has tried all of this, tried everything. When I started working with him, it had come to the point where he wanted me to make a decision for him. At least he wanted to run a decision by me. I can't make a decision for a client, right? Which company should he join? He already decided to leave, but which company should he join? And I don't think that's a good decision to make because if you look at all the companies he wants to join versus all the companies he's likely to join, they're very different. And I know this because the companies, the list he gave me at the beginning is different from the list he had interviews with. 
And the, the list he had interviews with are not prestigious companies. They're not going to take his career to the next level unless he takes a leadership role and he takes the company to the next level. And if he doesn't do that for the rest of his life, he's going to have to explain why he left this market leader, such a prestigious company, and joined this other company, which is not so great. And well, he didn't really do anything there. So big problem for him, a lot of despair, some failure as well. And what I want to do is talk you through how I guided him. Right. The first thing is to put together a plan for any client. But they have to follow the plan, but I still have to give them the plan. And sometimes I have to repeat it until they follow the plan. Sometimes I'll repeat things in multiple sessions and clients will say, why are you repeating the same thing? Because you're not following it. It's not enough for you to know the plan. You actually have to do it, right? I can't give you the whole plan because when you do something, we have to modify the next stage of the plan. So let's do it. We'll modify. Do it. We'll modify, right? And that's, that's just common sense. So let me explain to you the plan here because I think it can help many, many uh, readers. It's important to know how you're performing. 100% true. But if you are truly a leader, it doesn't matter how you're performing. And I'm going to explain that. If you are a leader and you are a bad performer, but your team is performing well, unless your bad performance is something like you are smoking drugs in the office or you're coming in drunk every day or you're engaging in inappropriate behavior with staff, the company doesn't care about your, about your performance. So when I say the company doesn't care about your performance, I say it doesn't care about your professional performance. The company should care about harassment and they should deal with that very quickly. So what this means is that if you're a senior person, you have a team, when a company looks at you and your employer looks at you, they look at your team. If your team's a high-performing, high-flying team, wow, you are going to get good ratings unless you're doing something very bad on the personal front. You have to be doing something really bad for your team to be a breakout success but you, as the leader of the team, is getting a personal negative rating. That's not the case with Addy. You can know that from speaking to him in the first few minutes. He's just a really nice guy, wants to give to the world. He understands the great privilege he has of being, the, I think he's the first person in his family to get an education, the first person in his family to come to the United States of America, brought his mother, brought his sisters, brought his brothers. I mean, you can, you know, give, you can give a round of applause to a guy like that. Very focused, very determined. So it's, he doesn't have a personal problem. I could be wrong, but I, I think, no, he does not have a personal problem. So the second thing I asked him to look at is, look at your performance of your team. Objectively, I know you've told me all these things, but I want you to say, don't say due to the circumstances we are doing this. Ignore that. Tell me, someone looking outside in, what would they say your team is performing like? And of course, his team is doing well. I mentioned that earlier, so we have to go into the details as well. The next question you have to ask yourself, and this one is important. Is your team critical to the broader organization? That means that if your team underperformed, will the broader organization suffer? We know this to be true. His team is critical to the broader organization because they could produce a significant amount of cash flow that is allowing the broader company to fund expansionary plans. So it's very critical that Addy manages team well. Now, the next question I asked Addy, and this is part of the plan, is, do you believe you're a valuable member of your organization? And valuable means that if you are not part of the organization, the organization suffers. And he said, yes, that's true. Now, the next question I asked him, and there's an important one. This is the one senior people need to answer correctly to reboot your career. You are valuable. So let's go through it, right? Your team is, you are performing well. Your team is performing well. The unit you run, the role you do, your team is critical to the survival and success of this company. My question is, now that we know you're also valuable, this is the important question. Where in the organization 
are you most valuable to your company? I'll repeat that. When your organization are you most valuable to your company? Because unless your CEO doesn't like you, unless he, he just or she just doesn't like you personally, is trying to punish you, which is almost never the case. Because CEOs want to bask in the glory of their success and they like to put key people into key areas so they can focus on other areas and they want to forget about things they don't want to think about. So if you are doing well and you are valuable to your company, they're not going to just put you in a bad place if it's going to hurt their performance and make the CEO look bad. So where are you most valuable to your company and why? This is an important question because what I want Adi to think about is that he believes he's most valuable as an EVP as a promotion, but clearly the company for some reason thinks he's more valuable as an SVP. And the question is, not why doesn't anyone want to promote him and so on. The question is, why does the company think he's most valuable here? What is it about the way he's running his unit makes the company think that given Addy's skills and success, it's better to keep him here? Now just think about this, right? So then we had it. We had a series of discussions, and I said, okay, now I want to unpack this. What would happen? Let's let's scenario play this let's assume you do get that promotion you want so you become an evp they call them sort of level one evps but it's an evp very senior position right and let's assume you get that role that you've wanted what's gonna happen and he talked about how he's gonna run the new unit and how he's gonna it's all these good ideas and i agree with everything he's gonna do to run the new unit because i actually know that company fairly well and i think that's what they need in that new unit so as an evp i think he'd do a stunning job but i asked him addy you work for this new unit or do you work for the company? He said, well, I work for the company. Okay, so why have you not spoken at all about the unit you are going to be leaving behind, which is one of the most important units in the company? You obviously care about them. They're important to the company. So why are you not worried what happens to them? Now, I want you to scenario play what's going to happen to them when you leave. And he talked me through everything. But here's the thing, what I got Addy to see. The unit performs well only when he's there. The unit does not perform well without him. And this is the problem with Addy, which is, a, which is something most leaders fail to appreciate as they make the transition into very senior management roles. You must always be grooming a successor. That's rule number one. If you want a role above you, you must always be replacing yourself. And he never saw this. He never saw it as something that he needed to do because he, for like many people, he still thinks that if he grooms a successor, the successor is going to replace him. People are going to think he's not important. And therefore, he needs to he's actually create an organizational structure, an organizational paradigm, and a culture. While his unit is very successful, it's actually dependent on him. His processes for decision-making need to all go through him. Certain key things he does has not been institutionalized, has not been documented, has not been captured. It means that if he's not there, nothing happens. Nobody knows how he deals with some clients. I'm not saying he's doing anything wrong. In fact, he's probably doing an amazing job, but nobody knows. So if nobody knows and nobody's ever gone along for a meeting with him, they don't know what is the secret sauce to what Addy is doing. And therefore, nobody knows how to replace Addy with key clients. So what Addy has done is he's become so successful in his role, he's made himself so indispensable that he cannot be removed. And it's a strategy most people follow. They make themselves so indispensable. They build organizational structures so intertwined around their personalities, their personality traits, their personality quirks, their processes, their systems, their emails, that if you remove them, everything falls apart. So yes, he's very valuable, very respected, but he's also very valuable and very respected, but the team cannot work without him. That's the problem. So step one is create a one-year plan. 
you need to groom a successor. Step two, you need to get the team to be able to work without you, which means that you need to teach people all the key things you are doing. Not one person, several people, so you don't run into this problem again. Three, you've got to set up systems, processes, and meetings whereby decisions can be made without you, which means you need to change the delegation of authority, which you need to change the culture of the company, not company, of the unit, because, and that's a big one, because everyone is now knows if you want to make a decision, you have to go to Addy. And there's nothing wrong with that. You've got a good culture, but it's the wrong culture. Once you've done all of that, and the unit is performing well, then you need to have a discussion with leadership about the fact that the unit's doing well. You've got a succession plan. It's important to bring in new leaders from outside the organization into that unit. And it's important to promote people that are junior in that organization into senior roles that Addy previously had so that they can learn how to be a better leader. You've got to explain the conveyor belt. And of course, if you talk about the conveyor belt, the question becomes what's next for you on the conveyor belt. Now, he followed that program over about, I think, just over a year and was very successful for him. But I want you to think about that as you're a senior person or in that cusp of seniority. Don't fall into the trap of just, you know, doing everything for yourself. Now, as always, if you find that these things are useful, if you believe that these kind of insights, these kind of concepts are going to help you, then you should subscribe to the premium program on Firms Consulting, whereby we unpack and we teach many of these insights, well, actually all of these insights in various ways, where we show you how we helped different clients. It's mostly insider, actually. We put our best content and our best thinking is available to people. Now, we have one more big surprise or treat, as you want to call it. Many, many insiders have asked for a more detailed version of some of the episodes. So what I'm going to do is, every week, what I think is the biggest story, I'm going to unpack it in a slightly different way for insiders, whereby I'm not just going to talk about the insight. I'm going to talk about how you in your career or your business needs to think about this insight to make decisions. Not just about the insight, but how this insight is going to affect you in how you make decisions and how you should be making decisions and how your company should be responding to this. That's available on strategytraining.com if you search for Strategy Insights Plus. So this is called Strategy Insights and Strategy Insights Pass is where we go deeper. And it's not just about the understanding of the story. It's about the insights, interplay, the mechanics and how it affects the world and how it affects you. As always, I'll see you next week, Monday morning at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.